Our great God and Father, we come to you as our great promise keeper, our miracle worker. God, you are our light in the darkness. And we pray that even now, as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and those places where we find ourselves in darkness, lost and confused. God, would your light break in? Would you direct us? Would you change us? Would you give us hope? Would you give us courage? Would you bring us encouragement? God, you know that we need that. And so come, Holy Spirit, and work as your word goes out. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So in 2007, CBS News ran a story with this headline, quote, hiker dies of thirst with water all around. The story went on and said this, by day two in the blazing Utah desert, Dave Buschow was in bad shape. Pale, racked with cramps, his speech slurred. The 29-year-old New Jersey man was desperate for water and hallucinating so badly that he mistook a tree for a person. After going roughly 10 hours without a drink in the 100-degree heat, he finally dropped dead of thirst, face down in the dirt, less than 100 yards from a cave with a pool of water. Now, the real tragedy of this story, the article went on to say, is not just that this guy died, but that it didn't need to happen at all. Uh, the incident occurred during a wilderness survival adventure that Bushow had dished out $3,175 to participate in. And there were expert guides close by equipped with emergency water. When they later asked them why they didn't intervene, they said, quote, we wanted him to dig deep, push beyond his human limitations, and to make it to the pool on his own. You know, we've been in a series over the last several weeks entitled Wilderness, and we've been following Israel on her journey from Egypt out of slavery into the promised land. And we've been looking at what it's like in this space in between freedom from Egypt and full entry into the promised land in this space called the wilderness. And you know, one of the main issues they face in the wilderness is a lack of water. They find themselves, like Bushow, desperate for water. And in many ways, it's a fitting metaphor for where many of us find ourselves wandering in the desert emotionally, maybe relationally or spiritually, finding ourselves thirsty, without any obvious place to find water to quench our thirst. But in our story, God, unlike the expert guides, actually satiates his people's thirst for water. But you know, the story isn't simple as all of that, and it's got actually a lot of great drama. And the story as we read it unfolds in three acts. In Acts 1, Israel is thirsty. In Act 2, they get snippy. In Act 3, their thirst is satiated. And so I want to invite you just to join with me as we enter into this drama. And if you have ever found yourself in a place where you are emotionally or maybe relationally or spiritually thirsty, in that space desperate for some water to quench your soul, you know what I'm talking about. 
If you found yourself in that place, you might find yourself addressed at some point in this drama as it unfolds. And so let's, let's kind of walk through the story. Notice Act 1, Israel is thirsty, verse 1. It says this, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. By the way, uh, it's named here the wilderness of sin. That's not because Israel was particularly sinful in the wilderness. It's because uh, this region was, was the region of Sinai, and it was called the wilderness of sin. And so by a happy coincidence, in our English Bibles, uh, it's named the wilderness of sin, which of course is very fitting because Israel did a lot of sinning in the wilderness. You do too. And uh, so here we go. Uh, they're in the wilderness of sin, moving along by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses, and they said, give us water to drink. But Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so here we meet Israel in crisis. They're desperate for water. And it's mentioned multiple times in the text. Uh, there's no water and they're thirsty. And now they're looking at Moses. Why did you bring us out here to die of thirst? Of course, the, the story resolves a little bit later when Moses strikes the rock and the people's thirst is satiated and their desperate need for water is met by the gracious provision of God. You know, it's interesting, a little bit later in the New Testament, uh, this story is drawn upon, and it's actually read metaphorically in the New Testament. And what they, they, they see in Israel here is not simply a physical thirst, but a spiritual thirst. And when they look at this rock that floods them with water, uh, the Apostle Paul later says that that rock was Christ. And they drank from that spiritual drink. And I think what Paul was doing was drawing a card from Jesus, which is a good person to draw a card from, wouldn't you agree? And uh, Jesus, of course, on uh, the last day uh, of one of the great Jewish feasts, he was in the city of Jerusalem, and he cried out before all of the multitudes. He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You know, that passage, uh, it occurs in John chapter 7, it's interesting, in John chapter 6, there's an allusion to Exodus 16. In Exodus 16, the people are fed with bread from heaven. In John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread from heaven. In Exodus 17, the people are, are given drink from that spiritual, uh, from the rock. And in chapter 7 of John, Jesus says, I am that drink that you are thirsting for. And I think what Jesus is getting at, I think actually not just Jesus, but Paul and many, many of the great uh, spiritual teachers, ancient and modern alike, have oftentimes named that there is a deep thirst in the human soul. You know, the, the great uh, Christian theologian and writer, uh, St. Augustine, put it like this. He, says, he said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest ultimately in the heart's true rest, which is God. We as human creatures are thirsty. Uh, we, we walk around with an, an, an insatiable spiritual need for transcendence, 
for something deep and infinite and meaningful, for, for, for deep and transcendent love and meaning and purpose and beauty and, and wholeness. And all that we thirst for is ultimately met in God. And so later, the New Testament writers will read this story as a story about spiritual thirst. But you know, before this story is about spiritual thirst, it is first about physical thirst. It's about physical thirst. And it's interesting, you know, physical thirst is, uh, thirst is one of our deep base needs. I don't know if any of you uh, remember back from Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. Remember this from Psych 101, some of you? You know, and uh, he talked about psychological needs and social needs. And then at the very bottom of the pyramid of human need was what he called base needs. And these included our need for food and drink and shelter and sleep, you know, the basest of human needs. And it's appropriate that that, that then becomes a metaphor for spiritual need because I think what, what the biblical authors claim, what Jesus claims, is that below even your basest need for water, even below your most fundamental need for food, is a deeper and more base need for God. We as human creatures were created for God. We were created, you were created, you were made for transcendence. You were made to have a connection with something deeper and more profound and more infinite than the finite material stuff around us. You were made for God. And so the New Testament authors, of course, draw upon this analogy for spiritual thirst. But again, before this story was about spiritual thirst, it was first about physical thirst. It was about a physiological need that Israel was experiencing in the wilderness. And let's just note this, that God is not simply concerned to meet their spiritual need. He's also concerned to meet their physical needs. That God is not simply concerned with the spiritual part of you. God is concerned about the whole of you. God is concerned about your health. God is concerned about your need for clean water and healthy food and clean air. God is concerned about the whole person. And I wonder sometimes whether or not the church is equally concerned as God is about the whole person. You know, I can remember back when I was just a, a new Christian, I was really excited to go out and to share my faith. And I used to go down to Santa Ana and there was a, a group of people that would feed the homeless there. And um, before they would allow the homeless to eat, though, they would preach uh, a gospel message. And you weren't allowed to eat unless you stood in line and listened to the gospel message. And they checked. And for me, at that point in time in my life, I didn't really care so much about their homeless condition. I never asked the question why they were homeless, what got them in that place. I didn't really know about their story. I didn't care to ask, quite frankly. What I thought they needed was the spiritual truth of the gospel. And of course they did. But you know, the God who is revealed in the gospel is a God who is both creator and redeemer. And he created human beings not to live homeless lives, not to live thirsty, not to live poor and anemic. God created us for holistic health and wholeness. 
And God here in the wilderness looks down upon and he sees the need of his people. They're thirsty. They need water. And you know, this is not a remote need that simply existed in the ancient world for the Jews in the wilderness. The need for water, it's a relevant need in the 21st century. You know, all over the world, there are people who are thirsty. And yeah, there are people who are spiritually thirsty, but there are people who are physiologically thirsty because they live in places where there's famine or they don't have access to clean water. Now, did you know that 844 million people, one out of every 10 humans who live on the earth, image bearers, those who are created in the image of God, one out of 10 lack basic access to drinking water. You know, the average woman in rural Africa walks six kilometers every day to haul 40 pounds of water every day. And what does that do to her ability to get her education and to spend her time caring for her children? Every day, more than 800 children. Every day, more than 800 children. That means today, 800 children died who are under the age of five from easily preventable diseases because of lack of access to clean water. And we serve a God who sees these needs, who hears the cry of those who have physical need for water, and he acts on their behalf. And I think it it should evoke a question for all of us, in what way am I acting on behalf? And in what way have my eyes seen and my ears heard the cry of those who are living in the dark shadows of our world outside of view for lack and who are dying for lack of clean water? And so it's true that on one level, this story is about spiritual thirst and how God meets our spiritual needs. But there's a dual component. There's two layers of this story that we need to keep in view as we continue to walk through this drama. It's both about physical need as well as about spiritual need. But let's move on. So Israel is there and they're thirsty in the wilderness. And their thirst, you know... Sometimes when you're hungry, most of us haven't really experienced real desperation for water. Maybe, you know, you were out for a run and you got thirsty and it wasn't readily available and you got home and you were just ready to drink. But very few of us have spent hours and hours out in a baking sun where we're on the verge of dehydration and death because we haven't had water. We don't know that kind of desperation. But a lot of us know what it's like to be really hungry. And because we're really hungry, we get in a bad mood. Any, are you sitting next to anybody like that? Would you just point them out? Would you pray for them right now? But the children of Israel, as they're thirsty, desperate for water, they get snippy. And look at what it says in verse 3. But the people of Israel thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out, into, out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Is that why Moses took them out of Egypt? To take them into the wilderness to die of thirst. Verse 5, and the Lord said to Moses, or no, and so, verse 4, so Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. A little bit later, you know, uh, in verse 
7, it says this, that they wound up calling the name of this place Massa, which means test, and then Meribah, which means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. You know, it's interesting, you know, we've met this term grumbling before in Exodus. It's all throughout the book. We said it's the primary verb to describe the action of Israel in the wilderness, Oftentimes in seasons of lack, it's the primary verb to describe how you respond to, isn't it? But here a new word is introduced, and it's not the word grumbling. That's not the primary word used to describe what's happening to Israel. Here it's quarreling. And in Hebrew, this is an interesting word because it has legal connotations. Uh, In other words, if a lawyer was going to litigate a case before a judge, the word in Hebrew you'd use to litigate the case, to argue the case, to quarrel the case was this word that's translated quarreling. And here it's as if they are bringing up Moses on charges and want to argue before him in court and prove that he is negligent of what will be their death. And they ultimately want to pass a verdict over him, and it's the verdict of death by stoning, which was capital punishment back in the ancient world. And so things have gotten really serious, haven't they? But what I want you to note is that when Israel is thirsty, when her needs are not being satiated, she gets snippy and quarrelsome and upset and she starts to distort reality and start to go after Moses and then in going after Moses, she's going after God. And I just want to note these two things, these two observations. Listen, often it's true for you and I as well that in times of crisis, we look for a scapegoat. And this is what Israel is doing. They're in crisis. Somebody's got to be the blame, right? And so we got to look for somebody to cast the, the guilt on. So let's put it on Moses. He's going to be our scapegoat. You know, and, and oftentimes when we are, find ourselves lacking spiritually, we feel empty or dry, or relationally, the marriage is hard. Uh, we're not getting along with mom and dad, uh, not getting along with roommates or whatever, or emotionally, you know, we just don't feel right. We feel hopeless or depressed. Oftentimes in those moments of spiritual lack, we find ourselves looking for someone to blame. We look for a scapegoat. It's, it's my parents' fault. It's my roommate's fault. It's my boyfriend's fault. It's my husband's fault. It's the pastor's fault. It's the church's fault. It's the government's fault. It's the president's fault. It, it, it's everyone's fault except for me. I got to look for a scapegoat because the last person I want to blame is me. Can I get a witness on that? In fact, why don't you just right now point out somebody around you that you want to be your scapegoat. But it's crazy in looking at Moses as their scapegoat, they actually start to attack him. They want to kill him. Moses wants nothing more than to help these people, but they think he wants to kill them. And so now they get all cannibalistic on Moses. And this happens oftentimes in families, in homes, and in communities. We start cannibalizing one another and going after each other. Does that happen? And we start hurting each other. 
In times of crisis, we look for a scapegoat. But second, I want you to see that extreme dehydration can oftentimes lead people to hallucinate. You know, this happens in our story. They start imagining that something is true that is the exact opposite of what actually is true. What actually is true is that Moses, at the risk of his own life, at the cost of having to leave his own family, went into Egypt, confronted Pharaoh, and, and, and exercised by God's strong hand, brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. And they say, you didn't come to save us, you came to kill us. Do you see what they're doing? They are distorting reality. This is what happens when people are dehydrated. Kind of like the guy in the story at the beginning. He mistook a tree for a person. Reality starts getting distorted. You start seeing things that are there that are not really there. You think there's a, 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 a river or a lake off in the distance, but it's just a mirage. You're seeing things that aren't actually there. And listen, oftentimes when we are feeling spiritually dehydrated, when we feel lack, we feel empty or depressed or low or lonely or just in a barren wasteland and we're hopeless, oftentimes we start narrating stories about people and about situations that are nothing more than a hallucination. It is a distortion of reality and it is not the truth. And this happens. And, and listen, we have to have the wherewithal to recognize the false narratives we tell ourselves about the people we live with, about the people we worship with, about the people in whose neighborhood we're in, about the people who, who are, are on the other side of the political aisle than we are. We got to stop telling false narratives about all. Those are human beings created in the image of God who are loved by God just like you are. So extreme dehydration can lead people to hallucinate. And of course, the scapegoating and the hallucination ultimately leads them to want to attack and go after Moses and not just get snippy, but they want to have him put to death. Now, I think uh, the surprising thing in the story is really what happens next. <laughs> because what happens how does God respond to the snippy, a quarrelsome, unbelieving people of God in our story? There is no word of impatience. There is no word of anger, not in this story. I mean, yeah, uh, the people are impatient with Moses. Moses is impatient with the people. But do you know who's not impatient in our story? God. God has been suffering long watching this whole thing unfold and he meets all of their complaining and he meets all of their deep physical need, their spiritual need. He meets it with his own gracious, generous water that comes from a rock. Look at what it says in verse 6. Or verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. He says, take that staff that was really a symbol and a sign of the redemptive power of God at work to free you from your slavery. 
He says, take that same staff because the power that was at work to free you from Egypt is at work in the wilderness to provide for you and to sustain you. And listen, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in your wilderness to sustain you and to uphold you. He says, take the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. Note this, that when God provides water for his people, he uses a human agent. When God, when God provides water for his people, when he satiates their need, he uses a human agent to meet their need. You know, there's some questions about what Moses actually does here when he taps the rock. Some have asked, is this a miracle? Is God's power at work in a unique way? Or is there something kind of natural about this? There are stories from geologists about rocks in which uh, water flows, and if you can just tap it hard enough, it might break open the rock and water flows forth. And you know, Moses had some know-how about the wilderness. Moses had spent 40 years in the wilderness. He had some technological know-how about how things functioned in the wilderness. He probably knew the secrets of the wilderness. He had been there out in the desert many, many times before where he needed to find water. And maybe God, you know, uh, pricked him and said, look over there, Moses, there's one of those rocks, you know, just hit that thing and water will come out. Or maybe this was a miracle. Whether it was supernatural or something more natural, it doesn't really matter. God used Moses ultimately to bring water from that rock to give to his people. And listen, when it comes to the physical thirst that exists in our world today, oftentimes people ask, how can it be that there is a God of love when 844 million people will die for lack of access to clean water? How can a God of love allow that to happen? Listen, the problem with the scarcity of water in our world is not with God. It's not a resource problem. It's not that there's not enough water in the world to go around. It's a human problem. Human injustice have blocked people from experiencing all the resources they need for life. And you know, it is the call of God upon his people. He wants mediators in this world who will go and maybe not tap a rock, but maybe just go up and tap a screen. You can go on the World Vision website today, right now, while I'm preaching. Don't do that while I'm preaching. But you could, and it says donate now. You can just click, and for $50, you can provide water for one human being who's made in the image of God. God uses mediators in order to bring water to his thirsty people. And of course, it's true also in our spiritual thirsts and our, our deep need for emotional and relational and, 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 and spiritual water in order to quench those deep places in our hearts where we are lacking and empty. You know, God brings people around us to pray with us, to pray for us, to walk beside us to invite us on a trip, to invite us to go serve, to challenge us to come to church. You know, God uses people around us in order to mediate his life-giving presence in his satiating water. But you know, in our text, 
the picture we get of Moses striking this rock and water coming forth, the real mediator that ultimately this points to is not the people God brings around us, though they are important when it comes to satiating your spiritual thirst and mind. The one this is ultimately pointing towards is the ultimate true and better Moses, who is the true and better mediator between God and man, namely Jesus Christ. And he didn't just strike the rock so that water can come forth. Jesus came into the world and he was the rock that was stricken so that water that gives you life may come forth. And he wasn't just stricken, he was beaten and mutilated and his body was hung on a cross in order that through his broken body, God might endure and exhaust all of the powers of sin and darkness and all of God's judicial justice against sin and darkness in the death of his own son. He endured and exhausted it all. He broke its power. He even on the cross cried out, I thirst, so that you and I never have to. So that by approaching Christ, we may actually experience life-giving water the very infinite life, the love that your heart needs, the belonging that you were made for. God has come into this world through Jesus to mediate all of that to you. And Jesus would say, if anyone among us thirsts, he says, come to me and drink. God has made access available to clean, life-giving spiritual water. But we need to come. We need to come. You know, Jesus had this beautiful little interaction with a woman at the well of Samaria in John chapter 4. And it's a well-known story. Many of you know this. But he walks up to this lady and she's pulling water out of a well and he says, if you drink from that water, you'll get a thirst again. But if you drink from the water that I give you, you're going to never thirst again. And she says, oh, sir, give me this water that I may drink from it always. And he looks at her and he says, go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, I know. You've had five and the man you're living with right now is not your husband. It sounded like he was changing the subject, but he wasn't changing the subject Jesus was cutting through the nonsense. And he was saying, look, there is a gaping wound in your heart. There is a thirst in your soul. And I know you've, you've been through relationship after relationship, and we don't know whether or not it was because she was abused uh, by different men and had to move out and go get with another man. We, we don't know whether or not her husband's died. We don't know if, you know, now she killed each one. She probably didn't do that, but... We just don't, we don't know much about her story. What we know this is that she had a deep hole inside of her life and that Jesus offers her water that will gush out to eternal life. Listen, if you want to know the love and the life and the purpose and the meaning and the hope that will ultimately satiate your deepest longing, your most fundamental base needs. 
It is only met ultimately and finally in God. And you will only ultimately go and experience this life-giving water if you stop turning to other things that don't satisfy that deep longing in your heart that you've been looking for to satisfy the longing in your heart. It's as if Jesus says, look, you want to stop You want to experience my life gushing water, then stop trying to quench your thirst with things that will never satisfy. Instead, open yourself up, be vulnerable to God about your deep spiritual and emotional and relational needs. Stop pretending, stop hiding. God knows what you need already. And listen, it is often the case You know, you've heard it said that water finds its lowest point. Well, living water often finds us in our lowest points. The living water offered by Jesus Christ finds you at your lowest point. It flows to your original wound, the thing you spend so much energy trying to heal through all the insufficient ways, through relationships or religion or success or more graduate degrees or more therapy or working out or trying to get your parents to love you more. There are a million ways we try to use substitutes for God to try and make sure that the damage that we feel deep down is not seen. Catholic theologian James Allison describes faith not as intellectually ascending to a set of theological propositions, but he describes faith as, get this, relaxing. Relaxing in the love and presence of God in the way we relax in the presence of someone we are certain is fond of us. When we're in the presence of someone we are certain likes us, we are funnier, we're more spontaneous, we're softer, we're less defended. Look, if I know for sure someone likes me and they loves me, then there is no reason to pretend to be something I'm not. And Allison says, faith is relaxing. And I think this is what happened to the woman at the well. This is the water God invites us to drink from I think the living water found a crack in her defenses and it trickled down to her lowest point, her deepest wound, her most profound, deep spiritual need, and she finally exhaled. In fact, she relaxed so much that as the story goes on, she winds up leaving the jar behind and she goes off and tells everyone, she says, go and see this man that told me everything I ever did. And I like to think that when she left that jar aside, it was kind of like saying, I'm leaving aside everything else I was going to to meet the deep need in my life because I have found that which ultimately will meet the deep need in my life. Listen, it is when you are known by God and you know you are loved by God and you belong to God, that God has moved heaven and earth, that God has gone to the very depths, that he went even to the cross and cried out, I thirst, so that ultimately your deepest thirst can utterly and finally be satisfied in him. And look, I'm almost done, but let me just say this. You know, this can sound at this point like an evangelistic message, and it is. And if you are searching right now, and you've been asking questions and you're kind of confused about who God is and whether or not you can know him, 
And tonight, maybe you're feeling like, I think God is here. I think God is real and I want him in my life. I want you to know God is available to you. You know, it's been said you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Christ says, come to me and drink. Come and, and empty from your hands that which you've been holding on to as the most significant central thing that you're trying to stuff down and satiate your thirst and stop it and just open up and receive my love. This is what you need. But you know, this isn't just an evangelistic message. It's not just those who are outside of the church or maybe investigating God that need to hear about God's living water in Christ. My goodness, I, I don't know about you guys, but I sure know what it's like to look to something other than Jesus to be my ultimate satiation for my spiritual thirst. I know what it looks like to try to have a more successful church, to have better sermons, uh, to have a more impressive uh, resume, uh, to get more education and read more books and to uh, present myself to other people and other, in order that, that I, this deep wound, this deep thirst inside of me might ultimately be filled by these things. And, and tonight, can we just hear the words of Jesus? Relax. Stop it. Let go of those things. Stop drinking from those broken vessels, those broken cisterns that will never hold water and turn your life once again to the true source of real living water, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, we come to you right now and we are your creation we did not make ourselves. We do not sustain ourselves. Our life was brought into being by you and we have been made for you so that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. God, would you show us new ways that we can lean into your life-giving presence? Would you convict us of those places where we're trying to stuff our spiritual thirst with things that will never satisfy? And God, would you lead us increasingly to your son Jesus where we might find life and love and health and healing and hope again? Would you bring people around us who can also mediate your presence to us, who can be mediators of this water, who can speak your truth into our lives? And would you help us to be agents of your life-giving water to others? God, would you come and use us as a community? We need you. Come, Holy Spirit. Come break in. Give us new life. Give us new hope, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.